0: Amen. You can be seated. Please turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter 5. As we finish this morning, our two weeks on the law and the gospel, Matthew chapter 5. And as you're turning there, do want to acknowledge that not only is today Mother's Day, but today is the last Sunday of Easter. Easter is not one day on the church calendar. Easter is 40 days, six weeks. We have been in the season of Easter. This Thursday will be 40 days after Easter, Ascension Day, the day that Jesus ascended to heaven, and uh, we celebrate that next Sunday on Ascension Sunday, which kicks off a trilogy of Sundays on the church calendar that lead us into ordinary time. So next Sunday will be Ascension Sunday. The Sunday after that will be Pentecost Sunday. And the Sunday after that is Trinity Sunday. And so we would invite and encourage everyone to celebrate those days with us as well. And so happy Mother's Day and happy Easter for one last time this year. He is risen. There you go. All right, Matthew chapter 5. Verses 17 through 20. The Holy Spirit says this. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law The kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Holy Father, you tell us that great peace have they who love your law and that nothing will make them stumble. So we ask now, Father, as we preach the law and the gospel, that you would cultivate in our hearts a love for the law and a love for the gospel and that it would yield great peace. We ask our Father in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus, and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I've done no wrong. Sweet Jesus, hear my prayer. Look down, look down, sweet Jesus doesn't care. These lyrics are from the opening song of the musical Les Mis. Les Mis is set around the Paris uprising of 1832, and the story is seen primarily through the eyes of our protagonist, Jean Valjean. The narrative opens with Jean Valjean being released from prison after 19 years. He was originally sentenced to five years for stealing bread for his starving sister and her family. And then Valjean added 14 more years along the way for several escape attempts And so as the play opens and Jean Valjean is imprisoned and he's forced to do manual labor, standing over him in the prison is his primary antagonist, the police inspector Javert. And if you've seen Les Mis, the play or the movie or you've read the book, um, it really is one of the clearest and most beautiful pictures of law and gospel ever portrayed in art. You see, after Jean Valjean is released from prison, the only people who will let this convict stay with them is a bishop and some nuns at the town church. Jean Valjean is hardened and desperate from almost two decades in prison and so he tries to take advantage of the rectory. He steals some silverware from the parish and then is subsequently stopped by the police. But when the authorities question the clergyman about the stolen silverware, the conversation doesn't go the way that Jean Valjean assumes it's going to go. The bishop tells the police not only did he give Jean Valjean the silverware, but also Valjean forgot some candlesticks that the bishop meant to give him as well. As the police leave, the pastor then encourages Jean Valjean to move forward from this mercy that he's been shown and to build himself a life. Well, Jean Valjean is still, at this point, bitter and confused, and he ends up stealing again. But after he steals a second time, the grace that he was shown takes effect and changes his heart, and he repents. The problem is that Jean Valjean repents after the crime has already been reported, and the police inspector, Javert, is convinced that this repeat offender must return to prison. From that point forward, Le Mis tells the story of Jean Valjean on the run and his life of good works born out of his redemption. And it also tells the story of Javert's perpetual pursuit of justice to find and incarcerate Jean Valjean. Jean Valjean broke the law, and Javert spends his life chasing Jean Valjean in the name of justice, in the name of the law. In contrast, Valjean is the personification of grace. He's the personification of the gospel. He was guilty, and the bishop showed him grace. John Valjean justly deserved to go to jail. He had broken the law. He was guilty, but he was forgiven, and the forgiveness that he experienced changed his life. Last week, Pastor Kevin preached our first sermon on the law and the gospel, and he explained why God's law and God's gospel are both non negotiable. We cannot preach the gospel without preaching the law. We cannot preach the law without preaching the gospel. This morning, we will take a look at the law and the gospel with a focus on how God's law then applies to the church. So last week, the question was, how do we understand the law and the gospel for those who don't believe, for the unredeemed? How do we think about it in terms of evangelism? This morning, we think about it in terms of the redeemed, in terms of the church, in terms of discipleship. Same law, same gospel, two different groups of people. How is it applied in the church? What does God's law mean for us today? How do we think through the imperatives of Scripture, the commands of Scripture, you know all those verses that say, thou shalt, thou shalt not? How do we think about those commands, those imperatives, while we also understand that we are saved by grace alone, that there is nothing that we can do to be saved, How do those two realities coexist? Before we do that, though, we must briefly review what Pastor Kevin covered last week, because once again, we can never preach the imperatives of the Bible apart from the indicatives of the Bible. We can never preach the commands of Scripture without the good news of what God has done for us in Christ. We can never preach the law without the gospel. And we cannot preach the gospel without first preaching the law. There is no one who has ever lived. There is no believer, there is no regenerate Christian who does not understand that he or she is a sinner. If someone doesn't think they're a sinner... They are not a Christian. Those, those can't be separated. Pastor Brett said it moments ago, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us, First 1 John 1, eight. So everyone who genuinely believes, everyone who has, has taken Christ by faith understands that they are a sinner. If someone does not think they are a sinner, then they do not believe. You cannot understand the good news without understanding the bad news. If you don't get the bad news, then there really is no good news. And the bad news is that we have all sinned against God. We have broken God's law. And we justly deserve death and eternal conscious punishment in hell because of our rebellion against God's law. We are like Jean Valjean, we are guilty of breaking the law. And like Javert, God's law relentlessly pursues us. Adam was given God's law in the command to abstain from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And because Adam was created in God's image, Adam had God's law written on his heart. The book of Romans says that Adam's conscience, like every other image bearer, their conscience testifies about God's law. The law reveals God's character, and that means that even though the law wasn't fully revealed until Mount Sinai, the law had been required of all of God's creatures all the way back to Adam. Murder was wrong even before God gave Moses the Ten Commandments. Adultery was wrong before God gave Moses the Ten Commandments. When Adam sinned, when Adam missed the mark of God's law, the result then was that all of humanity and all of creation fell in sin, in Adam. But where sin was found, grace did abound. Because immediately after Adam sinned, God gave him the good news. In Genesis 3.15, God told Adam that there would be a man, another man, a last Adam, who would crush the serpent's head. He would undo all the serpent did. And the manner by which that man would crush the serpent's head would be by the serpent bruising that man's heel. And the rest of the Old Testament, from Genesis 3.15 all the way through the end of the Old Testament, progressively leads us through redemptive history to the Gospels, where it is revealed that the man of Genesis 3.15 is actually God incarnate. The second person of the Holy Trinity, the Son of God, became flesh and dwelt among us. First, or John 1.14. We just confessed it in the creed that the Son of God was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. His name is Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus kept God's law perfectly. When we say that Jesus is righteous, when Hebrews 4.15 says that Jesus never sinned, it does not mean that Jesus did not ever do anything that would offend his current culture. It doesn't mean that Jesus never did anything that would offend every culture that's ever lived. What Hebrews 4.15 means is that Jesus never broke God's law. That's what never sinned means. Sin cannot be defined apart from God's law. Sin, by definition, is breaking God's law. And Jesus never sinned. Jesus kept God's law perfectly. And Jesus offered his righteous, sinless life On the cross to God to pay the penalty for the sins of his people. On the cross, Jesus was the substitute who paid the penalty to atone for the sins of the elect. His heel was bruised, justice was satisfied. We must understand this isn't arbitrary. Like, it's one story. It's all connected. Yahweh told Adam that the day that Adam ate of the fruit of the tree, he would surely die. Jesus, the last Adam, who, by the way, never sinned in thought, word, or deed, never sinned by what he did or by what he left undone. Jesus, who always loved the Lord his God with all his heart. Jesus, who always loved his neighbor as himself. Amen. This Jesus experienced the curse of God's law. The day you eat of the fruit of the tree, you will surely die. Don't mistake it. That's why Jesus had to die. Because we have all eaten of the fruit of the tree. Death spread to all men because all sinned. Jesus experienced the curse of God's law on behalf of his people, and it was through this bruising of Jesus' heel that Jesus would crush the serpent's head. Jesus experienced the curse of death for our sins in order to satisfy the justice of God. This is important. Jesus satisfied God's justice through his death, by offering his law-abiding, righteous, sinless life. Also then, so Jesus willingly submits himself to death to pay our debt, but death can't hold Jesus because Jesus isn't guilty. The sting of death is the law, right? The sting of death is that you can't get back up because you're rightfully guilty. Jesus got back up because he wasn't guilty. Jesus never broke the law. So on the third day, Jesus walked out of the tomb, resurrected from the dead, and this is the good news. The good news is that everyone who repents of their sin and believes this good news will be saved from the just penalty of their sin amen you know some people people who aren't familiar with biblical language you know language and vocabulary they'll sneer you know like you're 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 saved you guys all say you're saved what are you saved from this is what we're saved from we're saved from the just wrath of God against our sin that is exactly what we are saved from Jesus was not saved from that Jesus willingly underwent, experienced, humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, so that all who repent and believe can be saved from that. To repent means to confess and turn from your sin. It's what we did moments ago during our confession and pardon. It means to confess that you are a sinner and to turn away from your sin. And to believe means to have faith in Christ alone. The Reformed tradition has always defined faith with these three facets. We speak about them often. You're like, you guys say this every week. Duh, I got nothing else to say. This is, this is all I got. This is the good news, church, that if you have knowledge, assent, and trust, that's what faith is. It's knowledge, it's assent, and trust in Jesus, then you will be saved. Knowledge means that, that you know who Jesus is and you know what Jesus did. It's everything I just rehearsed. It's everything we confessed in the Apostles' Creed. All the facts about the person and work of Jesus. You must know them. It's essential It's non negotiable. There is no one who does not know the facts about Jesus who is saved. There's not. That's why Jesus said, Go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them everything that I've commanded to you. Jesus told us to do that because if we don't know who Jesus is and what Jesus did, we can't be saved. Knowledge is essential, but knowledge is also not enough. It's insufficient to save you. There are a lot of people who know the facts about Jesus, who have knowledge about Jesus, but, but aren't Christians. They don't believe because you must also assent. Assent is a step further than knowledge. Assent is, is taking what you know and actually believing that it's true. All the doctrine about who Jesus is and what Jesus did, that's just not something some people believe. You think that's real. That really happened. It's not just our tradition. It's not just our religion. It's not just our holidays. It's real. But even knowledge and assent together fall short of saving faith without trust. Trust is the final and key component. Trust means that you are resting in Christ alone to save you. Trust means you are placing the full weight of your hope on Jesus to atone for your sins. Trust means that you understand that there's nothing that you can do to earn God's favor. Trust is resting in the fact that God forgives you and that God is pleased with you In Christ alone. That's the good news. See, we started with the law, with the bad news. You are guilty. We went to the good news, how you can experience the forgiveness of your sins and the hope of eternal life. And and then if that's true, now this is the question that we're asking for today. If all that's true, if everything I just said is true, if everything Pastor Kevin said last week is true, if everything we say every single week is true, right? And if it's true that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, if it's true that there's nothing that we can ever do to earn God's favor, if it's true that in Christ God has forgiven all of our sins, past, present, and future, And if it's true that our righteous standing before God is based exclusively on the righteousness of Jesus alone, that's what the Reformers preached from the Bible, right? That's why we're not Roman Catholic, because we think all that's true. If that's true, then how do we think about the commands that are given to us in the Scripture? There are imperatives in both the Old and New Testament. So it's not like we get to the New Testament and there's no commands. There's no imperatives. Like, it's all, it's all grace. There's no obedience. How do we think about the commands of Scripture? How do we apply God's law to our individual lives and in Christ's community church? How do we interpret the imperatives of the Bible, the commands of the Bible, without falling into one of the two ditches on either side of the road? You see, there's a ditch on this side of the road that's called legalism. We fall into that when we think that we are righteous before God based on our participation in or abstinence from X, Y, and Z. That is not the gospel. It's legalism. That's a ditch on this side of the road. On the other side of the road, there's this ditch called lawlessness, which basically says, hey, it really doesn't, God doesn't care what you say, think, or do because you're saved by grace alone. And so he, he doesn't have an opinion on your words, thoughts, or deeds. Also not the gospel, right? So we got these two ditches. How do we navigate? How do we stay on the road and avoid these two ditches while we also understand that there is literally nothing we ever say or do that justifies us, that makes us righteous before God. Jesus helps us with this as we consider our text from Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. Understanding the setting of this pericope is essential, though, if we are to know what to do with the Bible's imperatives. You see, Matthew chapter 5 through 7 summarizes for us the greatest sermon ever preached, we could say, right? The Sermon on the Mount. And we can't miss what Matthew is doing in the narrative if we want to understand the Sermon on the Mount and how to apply God's law under the New Covenant in the New Testament on this side of the cross and the empty tomb. And I think... Those who have misunderstood the law gospel reality, people who might be dispensational or Protestant liberals or any other group who has poorly understood law and gospel, it's because they're failing to understand what Jesus is saying and doing here in the Sermon on the Mount. Throughout our Exodus series, we noted, as we looked to the Gospel of Matthew from time to time, that Matthew, in his Gospel, is revealing to us that Jesus is recapitulating the experience of Moses and the story of Israel. Through his life, through God's providence, Jesus is kind of acting out the story of Israel and the story of Moses. Just as Moses was saved from being aborted by Pharaoh, so Jesus was saved from being aborted by Herod. Just as God called Israel, his son, out of Egypt in the Exodus, he also called Jesus, his son, out of Egypt after Herod died. And Matthew quotes Hosea, out of Egypt I have called my son. Just as Israel went through the Red Sea and into the wilderness for 40 years, so Jesus goes through the waters of baptism and into the wilderness for 40 days. Jesus is living out Israel's story. He has come to show that he is the true Israel. That Israel was called God's people only insofar as they are leading us to God's person. Jesus. Jesus is God's people. And all who are in Jesus. And then after they go into the wilderness, just as Moses went up Mount Sinai to receive the law of God, now after his temptation in Matthew chapter 4, we go to Matthew chapter 5 where Jesus now goes up the mount, just like Moses, and Jesus goes up to preach the law in the Sermon on the Mount. And this is key for us to understand how to apply the law. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, is not giving a new law. The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' Christ-centered exposition of Genesis through Deuteronomy. Jesus is not saying new, anything new. He is preaching Genesis through Deuteronomy in a Christ-centered way. God's law never changes. It cannot change because God's law reveals God's character. And God's character is eternal. It is unchanging. The difference now under the new covenant, the difference in the New Testament, the difference for us is not that the law is gone. Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish the law. What's the difference? The law is fulfilled. I did not come, Jesus says, do not think, verse 17, do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus didn't come to abolish the law. Jesus came to fulfill the law. The word fulfill is the Greek word plerao. This is, this is the definition of plerao, fulfill. It means to give the true or complete meaning to something. To give the true or complete meaning to something. So Jesus says, I did not come to abolish the law. I came to play ra'o the law. I came to give the true or complete meaning to the law. Jesus then says that the law will not pass away until heaven or earth pass away. In case you're keeping score, that is never. We will live forever in the new earth. The creation itself is groaning to be resurrected. It's not groaning to be abolished. The law itself is intricately connected to God's creation because God's creation is subject to his law. Why? Because his law reveals his character. Because that's true, then, Jesus rebukes those who relax the law. Are are we all catching this? This isn't the Old Testament. This is the New Testament. In the New Testament, Jesus says, Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commands will be called least in the kingdom, and whoever teaches them and does them will be called great in the kingdom. This is the New Testament. So you can't be like, that was for them, not for us. Like, this is ours, right? If you subscribe to to that terrible hermeneutic, at least you got to say this is our section. And Jesus is saying that the law applies here. That those who teach it and do it are great. And those who enter the kingdom of heaven are those whose righteousness exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees. The scribes and the Pharisees, of course, were self-righteous because they believed they were keeping God's law on their own strength, and they were not interpreting the law in light of Christ. But the truth is that we cannot keep the law, and Jesus is the only one who did. So how do we rightly interpret verse 20? For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Who is it, who are the people, who have a righteousness that exceeds the Scribes and the Pharisees? The people who have a righteousness that exceeds the Scribes and the Pharisees are the people who are in Christ. Because Christ is the only one who has a righteousness that exceeds the Scribes and the Pharisees. Christ is the only one. He's the only truly righteous one. He's the only one who kept the law. He's the only one who practiced what he preached. Everything that Jesus requires of us in the Sermon on the Mount, he's the only one who did it. He is the righteous one. And now through the teaching of Jesus and through the teaching of the apostles, the New Testament reveals to us that Jesus Christ is, fulfills both the civil and ceremonial aspects of the law. I won't spend too much time on this because Pastor Kevin talked about it last week too, but when we think about the law and applying the law as New Covenant Christians, the Reformed tradition uses this language of the, the three aspects of the law. There's, there's the civil, the ceremonial, and the moral. The civil Aspects of the law are about all of the uh, community regulations, basically the law of the land, uh, how the people are governed. Uh, the ceremonial has to do with their worship, the priesthood, the sacrifices, the temple. And the moral has to do with the moral, with keeping uh, living rightly, living justly, walking humbly with our God. The New Testament then reveals to us that the civil and the ceremonial are fulfilled in Jesus. Because again, sometimes you hear Christians say things like, well, we don't do this anymore and we don't do that anymore, you know, because Jesus died and rose again, but we still do this from the law. And there's not really any continuity, right? There's not really any organic or reasonable explanation as to why that's the case. This is the explanation. The civil and the ceremonial are not done away with arbitrarily. They are fulfilled. They have served their purpose. The moral continues because the moral is ingrained in God's creation, in God's creatures. The civil aspects of the law were fulfilled in Christ for this reason. Because Christ came through the nation. The civil aspect was keeping the nation intact so we could get to Jesus. The book of Galatians says, when the time was right, God sent his son. That means the nation of Israel needed to persevere until the true Israelite could be conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Israel's theocratic distinction, their national laws, revealed the character of God to the nations until God himself came for the nations. Under the new covenant, the kingdom of God is not marked by ethnicity. It's not marked by blood and soil. It is marked by faith and the word and bread and wine. The civil aspect of the law has been fulfilled. The ceremonial aspect of the law also has been fulfilled because Christ is the true and final sacrifice for sins. There is no more any need for the ceremonial regulations of the law, because the true and final sacrifice has been offered. The old covenant sacrificial system with its priesthood and its animal sacrifices and its liturgical calendar were all leading us to Calvary. There's no longer any need for a priesthood. There's no longer any need for sacrifices because Jesus is the true and final great high priest. And because Jesus is the true and final sacrifice and on the cross, Jesus declared, it is finished. No longer is there any need for sacrifices. In fact, offering sacrifices to God after the death of Jesus would be sacrilegious because they would trample on the cross of Christ. So the civil has been fulfilled, the ceremonial has been fulfilled, they've been completed, they've reached their goal through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and so the only aspect of the law that remains, and it does remain, is the moral aspect of the law. We spent 10 weeks preaching through the Ten Commandments and how they're still required for God's people Let me encourage you, even now with some hermeneutics, if you think in your daily life that the Ten Commandments don't apply to you, then you do not understand the Bible. The Ten Commandments are required of you. You are in sin when you are breaking any of the Ten Commandments in 2023. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is an exposition of the Ten Commandments. In fact... If you were to look at every single command in the Bible, every single imperative, every single ethical demand of Scripture, every single one, no exception, every single one of them can be traced back to one of the Ten Commandments. Another way to say that, there's no sin that you ever commit that isn't breaking one of the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments covers all the sins. It's some kind of application of it, but it's covered. When you sin, you are breaking one of the Ten Commandments. And so there's not a single imperative in the New Testament that is not an application of one of the Ten Commandments. That's what all of the commands are. Of course, church, this has always been true. This is nothing new. The moral aspect of the law has been required ever since the dawn of creation. The moral aspect of the law was required for Adam and for Noah and for Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Adam sinned when he broke the first commandment by making himself God in the matters of knowledge of good and evil. Cain sinned when he murdered Abel. Abraham sinned when he committed adultery against Sarah with Hagar. Jacob sinned when he bore false witness against his father. And the same is true for us because God's moral law is eternal. But what's important for us to remember is that we cannot, we do not follow God's moral law in order to be righteous before God. Jesus is the only one who kept the law And it is exclusively through faith in Jesus that we are right before God and that God is pleased with us. That means if you are a Christian, if you believe, there is nothing that you can ever say or ever do to make God love you any more than he does right now. And there's nothing that you can ever say or ever do to make God love you any less than he does right now. If you are a Christian, and that's an important part of the equation, because those statements are not true of you if you are not a Christian. If you are not a Christian, you are under God's just condemnation, and you will pay for your sins in hell forever. But if you are a Christian, then God loves you like he loves Jesus, because you are in Christ. And so the gospel, the good news, frees us from the burden of the law. The gospel doesn't free us from the law, but it frees us from the burden of the law so that we can rejoice in the law. When God works regeneration in our hearts, he gives us the gift of faith and he fills us with the Holy Spirit. Notice, you didn't have anything to do in, in that sentence. You were passive. God did all that to you. When God worked regeneration in your heart, he gave you the gift of faith and he filled you with the Holy Spirit. He did all that. You didn't do any of it. But it is from that stance now, from that viewpoint, from the stance of already being justified, from the stance of already possessing a new heart, from the stance of already being indwelt by the Holy Spirit, it is from that posture that you are now able to delight in God's will and walk in God's ways to the glory of God's name. We obey the law, church, not to be righteous before God, but because we are already counted righteous before God in Christ. We obey God's law not to earn God's favor. We obey God's law for God's glory and for our good. We obey God's law for his glory because the law reveals the character of God. And God created us in his image, so he created us for the purpose Of mirroring his character. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's the chief end. Chief end means that's why you exist. What is the meaning of life? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. That is the purpose for which we were created. God is our creator, and so God rightfully demands how his creatures think, speak, and act. It's not an imposition, it's his right. And so God is glorified when we obey his law because he rightfully deserves our obedience. But we also obey God's law for our own good. Because obedience to the law of God, rightly understood in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? Because we don't interpret any portion of the Bible apart from Christ. If you're, if you're interpreting the Bible without Jesus, you're doing it wrong. If, if an Orthodox rabbi would agree with your interpretation of Deuteronomy, you're not interpreting the Bible correctly, right? It's always in light of Jesus. So God's law understood in light of Jesus when it's obeyed, it produces human flourishing. That's the result of obedience to God's law. Humans flourish. Countless surveys have suggested that the happiest and most content people in the world are people who are religious and go to church and stay faithful in their marriage. Because society benefits everyone, Society is benefited, right? Everyone is benefited when people don't murder and when people don't steal and when people tell the truth. Why? Because those are the Ten Commandments. That's the law of God. This isn't a coincidence. These things are not true simply because family values and conservative values are the most beneficial. That's not why these things are true. No, these things are true because God created the world in such a way that it would thrive under his law. Love of God and love of neighbor is the engine that keeps the world running as God intended. As we read from the Westminster uh, Confession last week, Loving God and loving neighbor is the summary of the Ten Commandments, which is the summary of the law. And it is only from this posture that we can strive to obey God's law while also resting in the gospel. Those are simultaneous realities. We are resting in the gospel, and from that rest we strive to obey God's law. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We can only obey God's law because we have a peace with God that cannot be revoked. We don't obey the law to earn peace with God. We can obey the law because we have peace with God. We have been adopted into God's family through Christ Christ. Our peace with God has nothing to do with whether we obey the law or not. Our peace with God is completely and utterly grounded in Jesus. That means in order for for you, if you're a Christian, if you're a believer, in order for you to no longer have peace with God, God would have to reach back into time and pull Jesus off the cross. That's how secure your peace is. And it's from the posture of that peace that we obey God's law, not to merit God's favor, but because we have God's favor. We obey not to earn God's love, but we obey because we have God's love. It's the difference between these two scenarios. Imagine you were to come home one day and your neighbor is standing on your front porch. And your neighbor says, hey, I just wanted to let you know while you were gone, this representative from the IRS showed up at your door. And so I went over and talked to him. And he said uh, that you were $20 short on your taxes. And if you did not pay that $20, that you were going to go to prison until you worked off that $20. But I want you to know I paid that for you what would your response to that be? Hey, thanks, man. Right? I appreciate that. You know, good looking out. Contrast that. If you come home, your neighbor's standing there, the IRS came, went over and talked to him, and he said that you are $100 million short on your taxes And you are going to prison until that $100 million is paid off. But I want you to know I paid it for you. What would your response to that be? It wouldn't be, hey, thanks, man. No, what would you do? You would fall down on your knees and you would say, command me, right? I will do whatever you ask for the rest of my life. You paid my debt. I can never repay you, but I will spend the rest of my life showing you how grateful I am that you paid it for me, for your grace. It's from that posture that we obey the law. The law is no longer a burden that condemns. It's a delight because it's been satisfied. It's been fulfilled. And because that's true in the gospel, we move from guilt to grace to gratitude. It's why we take the Eucharist every single Sunday because the word Eucharist means Jesus, thank you. That's because grace is transformative. That's because grace changes us. When we understand how love and justice meet in the cross, we can't help but want to serve and obey in response. And if that is not your response, then you don't understand the gospel. Obedience to God does not save you, but if God has saved you. You will want to obey him. Law without gospel brings death. And that's what Javert concluded too. You see near the end of Les Mis, there's this Paris revolution going on and the revolutionaries capture Javert and they're going to execute him. And Jean Valjean volunteers to pull the trigger. He's going to be the one to execute this law officer who has been chasing him for decades. But when the moment comes, instead of killing him, Jean Valjean sets him free and shows him grace. Javert then gains the upper hand on Jean Valjean and he finally has captured him. This man who has eluded the law for decades is now in custody. But Jean Valjean requests one thing, that he have a chance to say goodbye to his adopted daughter, and Javert allows it. And while Jean Valjean is in his house saying his goodbyes, Javert is torn. On one hand, Javert feels like he can't turn Jean Valjean in because Jean Valjean showed him grace. He could be dead right now, but he showed him grace. But on the other hand, Javert can't alleviate the burden of the law. Jean Valjean broke the law. He's guilty. He must be condemned. And Javert just can't live with both of those realities. He commits suicide by jumping off a bridge. Javert could not reconcile law and grace. Law and gospel. He didn't know how the two fit. But that's exactly what happened in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus lived without sin, keeping the law perfectly. And then on the cross, Jesus offered his righteousness to God in the place of his people. And the justice of God was satisfied in the pure, sinless, righteous, law-abiding life of Jesus Christ. And so those opening lyrics from Le Miz are wrong in every way. We have done wrong. We are guilty. But sweet Jesus does hear our prayer. And he does care. Because it's on the cross where the law and the gospel meet. And it's at the cross where the miserable ones can be saved. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we... Ask now that you would keep your promise and that your word would not return void. Father, we are all guilty of your law, but Jesus is not. And we all deserve the penalty of death, and Jesus took it for us. And we all deserve your wrath, and Jesus took it for us. And so, Father, we ask now once again for all who are in the room this morning who have not repented and believed the gospel that your Holy Spirit would raise the dead, that their eyes would be opened to see the, the, their guilt under the law and the freedom that comes through the good news of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus told us that the truth would set us free. That freedom is from the burden of the law, from the condemnation of the law. And so, Father, we ask you would save this morning. Father, we ask for your people that you would sanctify us in the truth. We believe that your word is the truth. And as we come to your sacrament now, we pray for hearts that are grateful. We have acknowledged our guilt. We have heard of your grace. And now we come to the bread and the wine in gratitude. Jesus, thank you. We pray in your name and by your spirit. Amen.